Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hey, what's up, everybody? Smart People Podcast and Chris on the mic. Man, I got thrown off. <laughs> I know. And John on the ones and twos. Yeah, exactly. I'm mixing it up on everybody. Just to make sure they're wide awake to get some knowledge dropped on them from this show, we're going to interview Fran Hawthorne. She is a prize-winning author and journalist with over 20 years' experience and she writes regularly for New York Times, Newsday, Scientist, Institutional Investor. The uh, list goes on. She's got a number of books, the most recent being Ethical Chic. And I thought it was a kind of an interesting concept behind this book. Oh, I mean, it was very cool. And when I found out that my favorite company in the world was involved, yeah, you then knew we I'd be bashed interested. the out of it. Whoa. Can I say Yeah, you can say, I mean, this is a podcast. So That's true. those people just hear beeps. <laughs> Good. Oh, man, it's going to be great. I actually wanted to Apple bash. Oh, Apple is the, the company John's referring to. And look, they make great stuff. But the reason it's cheap is because they outsource this labor to, as you've heard of by now, sweatshops. And there's suicide nets. And people literally, it's like, man, it's just depressing. But there are five other companies. And I'm only going to tell you one of them. And that's Apple. And I will oh, come another one. Yeah, running... Apple 
to their protection because really they're not. Oh, so you're gonna tell me that any of the other electronic stuff that we have built is being built in other places? No, nope. it's all being built. Here's there. what that's I'm gonna the tell you. Part. Here's what I'm gonna tell you. You have a great company that's innovative and all this, right? Do they need to be worth this much money? I don't know. Maybe they do. I guess think so. Okay, f that. That's the thing I, that's I, killing I, me. I agree with that. Even though you are a shareholder, I am. Um, but in the same token, I can hear the Republican free market guy saying, "Yeah, but with that money, they can make more innovations and blah blah." blah. And that's true. So it's tough. I just sometimes you wonder, like, step up what you believe in, what you stand for, a little bit, like just well, they a little. Did. Now, they did. They did a little bit because they went in there with some money and got yeah. raises for people in those Foxconn yeah. uh, factories. But, you know, still, like, those people are still living in very, very poverty-laden yeah. levels. And, and, I mean, if they would have been like, hey, everybody, here's the iPhone 5. It's $700. I would have been like, well, hey, Galaxy, whatever it is. I, I don't even know what the name of the Galaxy phone is. I would have bought one. So maybe it's on us, too. It's, I mean, uh, it's it's definitely on us. We want cool things, and we want them cheap. Well, that's what we're doing here at SPP. We are, we're giving you a cool thing for very cheap. Yeah. What is cheaper than free? That is a and great the point. only way we didn't plan that. that you can even give us a little bit money without trying is Amazon. Is Amazon. Go over to our website. Smartpeoplepodcast.com. The Amazon banner's at the top. My dad, who is kind of tech savvy, couldn't find it because he had ad blocker. So go to the Amazon tab. Guess what it's labeled? Um, Amazon tab. You're way too slow. Yeah. And uh, that's the link. Help us out. It's holiday season. We know you're doing your buying and it's usually our biggest two months. It's the only way we can buy a new soundboard, which we desperately need. So enough of the self-promotion. Fran Hawthorne, we're going to talk to her about her book, Ethical Chic and The Overloaded Liberal, which I really liked. It talks about all the choices that we get inundated with. Can I buy organic or how do I fix this my thing. carbon footprint, exactly. all that kind of stuff. And uh, it's tough, but she gives you a few good pointers and makes you feel better about your life. Thanks for tuning in. Here's Fran. The first thing I wanted to do and we like to do in the podcast is get an idea of your background and what got you interested in writing, specifically the type of writing you do. I know your newest book, Ethical Chic, talking about six prominent companies today and, and that kind of investigative journalism. How did that all start? Journalism itself started uh, truly in college. You, you never know what's going to change your life, right? And it was simply a roommate. I wasn't even a friend, but just kind of a bunch of us in a house who said to me, if you really like to write, why don't you, you know, go to the school newspaper? And I had always kind of looked down on the idea of the newspaper, but I went, I got assigned a story. I loved it. And that just got me hooked, you know, sophomore year in college, and that was it. And I went through the next two and a half years spending much more time on my uh, newspaper career than my classes. So then I did all kinds of journalism, starting with a local paper after I graduated, school boards, um, neighborhood problems, moving on to covering the courts in New Jersey. And then I, I got a job as a copy editor, actually, at Business Week, knowing absolutely nothing about business. I did <laughs> not know the difference between a stock and a bond. I mean, now I can confess this. I certainly didn't tell them when they hired me. Right. And, and what I discovered in the course of working at Business Week and then other business publications was that it wasn't just stocks and bonds and 
people making money and, and probably what many uh, people listening to this may think who kind of skip the business pages of their newspaper and just think it's greedy and boring. But that business, of course, affects every aspect of everyone's life. And there are so many places where the business world intersects with politics, with social policy, with environment, with prices, you know, and consumer issues, with everything. And, of course, what I particularly write about with social issues and ethics. And I, that's finally where I realized that I could make a difference. That's where the meat was. You know, it wasn't just theory. It was action. It was money. It was direct impact. It was what people weren't looking at enough because you had the business writers writing about corporate policy and money making and stocks and you know, uh, corporate strategies and products and marketing and all those standard business issues. And you have the political reporters writing about politics. You know, very few people looking at the intersection. And I saw that this was where I could really make a difference and wanted to make a difference. No, and that's fantastic. I mean, you can tell just by your writing, if it's something you're passionate in, it's going to come out in your written word. And it definitely does. And I wanted to kind of dive in and first say congratulations. Like we mentioned, your newest book, Ethical Chic, the Library Journal just named it one of the best business books of 2012. So congratulations with that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's really exciting. Yeah, and it was deserving. I love the topic behind it because it stirs some controversy. As I mentioned in our previous conversation, John is a huge Apple fan, and you talk about six main companies, Apple, Starbucks, Trader Joe's, American Apparel, Timberland and Toms of Maine covers a, a wide array of categories and, and things like that. I wanted to jump in. When you were going through all these companies, was there anything that resonated throughout all of them that you were shocked about? I mean, was there something you were like, oh my gosh, I, people need to know this or I need to put this in a book? Is that kind of what came about? Yeah, I mean, each company had something that surprised me sometimes more positively than I expected, by the way, usually negatively. <laughs> um, you know, the common thread that tied all these together at the beginning and, and the thesis that prompted the book was that these were companies that are well-known, that have an image of being a little bit better than your average clothing or food or whatever company in their industry, a little bit more ethical, uh, perhaps using organic products or selling organic products or treating workers well. They had this image. And secondly, they had an image of being also really cool and fashionable and hip. You know, and, you know, well-known brands, brands that have incredible fan bases and loyalty, brands that, that are a brand really established. So they had, all six of these had this common thread. And what I then dove in to do was to see if they really deserved their reputations, if they were as supposedly you know, ethical and responsible as, as their image you know, would seem to imply. Going into Apple specifically, mm -hmm. I think that people who kind of follow the company do associate with their cool stores, and they make amazing products. That's It just is. But people also do read in the news about the factories overseas that – I've heard they have suicide nets in them. I don't know if that's true, but um, so I kind of wanted to jump into Apple and see what you dug up with them. Now, when I started the book, you see, people didn't know about the Chinese factories. So uh, this has come out more recently to kind of, in a way, prove my thesis, I suppose, um, that uh, Apple isn't as wonderful as we think. But in the beginning, you're right. Incredible products, they are gorgeous. They are generally higher quality. I mean, 
you know, the cliche is that Macs don't get viruses the way, you know, PCs do. And I think I can attest personally. Oh, that's true. That seems to be true. Knock wood, knock wood so far with my MacBook. Um, You know, and uh, that in some cases, like with the iPod, I mean, there really isn't anything else. Or the iPhone, the first well-known brand of its kind, not the very first smartphone. But um, so... Anyway, definitely quality products, cool products, gorgeous, well-made. So so all that's true, and that's part of the incredible devotion that fans feel toward Apple. But there's another part of this devotion, and Apple is just a wonderful example to bring up, because if you talk to environmental activists and community activists, they just roll their eyes in annoyance that there is this image people who love Apple products, they look at Apple, or at least used to, and say, well, I love Apple, and I'm a good person, and and I recycle, and I really try to, you know, conserve energy. I care about carbon emissions, and and I love Apple, and, and I would never use a product made by an unethical company. So Apple must be ethical because I love Apple and I'm ethical, and, and Al Gore is on the board. And so the people just with the circular reasoning have created an image for Apple that, in fairness, Apple and Steve Jobs never tried. Believe me, as, as you well know, Apple and Steve Jobs tried to create many images. But one image they never set out to do was to be an image of a green or ethical company. And yet the fan base created this really out of thin air. Apple was later than all the other big uh, competitors in that sphere in terms of, you know, enabling people to recycle used parts or joining industry groups that were trying to come up with, you know, greener processes. It was late because Apple doesn't join things, right? Apple has to be the leader, so it will never join anything. So it was just slower, worse, later than all the rest of its industry. But it just had this image. And what people didn't know about was the sweatshops. This came out about a year ago, a year and a half ago. And again, in fairness, it's not just Apple. Most of your you know, um, technological products made in China in this very same big factory complex owned by a company called Foxconn. And indeed, there was a whole lot of suicides about a year and a half ago, and they did put up nets. You're absolutely right. Hmm. You know, dreadful working conditions there, the same as you read about in other sweatshops in in foreign countries uh, where you have long, 17-hour days. You're forced to live in these crowded company dorms with, you know, no space, no privacy, uh, you can't take you know, bathroom breaks when you work. The women are often sexually harassed. Often there's no safety equipment. Indeed, there are horrible conditions, and, and a number of people, workers there, were committing suicide. And the protests are still going on there. And, you know, Apple, to be fair, when the things got bad enough, did bring in an outside monitor and, and has been working with the government, with the factory there, to try and improve conditions. So in a way, the one thing that Apple has been known for in a sort of bad way is the least of its problems. It's funny that you mention Foxconn and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. out over there because the plain, simple, like sad part of it is a lot of those people over there line up to get those jobs. Like That's almost like one of their, I don't want to say higher status jobs, but they know that they're going to continue to bring home wages and all that kind of stuff. So it is good to see these companies try to step in, albeit it's probably really late to the fact. 
but just to to try to come in there and and spread some of their money throughout Foxconn to kind of raise wages and whatnot. You're absolutely right, and, and it's not so simplistic. Um, for many many people in these countries, Bangladesh, Honduras, Vietnam, China, indeed, these jobs that we see as dreadful sweatshops are the best available to uh, people who don't you know have much education. Right. The alternative is you go back to the countryside to your family farm that the soil is probably ruined and the farm keeps being divided among you know more people and you can't earn a living on it. Or the women, what's the alternative, right? Prostitution. You know, so indeed these are considered desirable jobs with, you know, Western companies that do pay wages regularly. They're low wages, but they're better than the wages elsewhere. So yeah, it's not that simple. So, so if a company like Apple is seriously working with these groups, these monitoring groups, to make sure that the conditions are better than the law requires, getting better, getting more decent, that can be um, indeed a good thing. Given that a lot of these conditions, the fact that the majority of the jobs are, or all of them almost, are overseas, is because people demand lower prices and better quality products. So are we almost a you know, we're almost driving it as a consumer, and then we have to take some of the blame, I would I would imagine. I agree with you. You can't have it all, right? Right. You want low price, and then you don't want to feel guilty about the working conditions that go into keeping the price low. Hmm. Well, <laughs> you're going to have to find some kind of compromise, whether it's bringing the work back here, you know, being willing to pay more, even with the foreign jobs, to have better working conditions and higher pay. And I do think the consumer movement is waking up to that, and there does seem to be a bit more willingness to pay a little more to get the conditions better. Right. Now, let's transition to Starbucks for two reasons. Mm -hmm. One, I read a book not too long ago, and I believe the title was Starbucks Saved My Life. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and it was a good book. I I like it. I do think and know, you know, baristas who enjoy their job and get good benefits and things like that. So, but on the other token, I bought a tall peppermint mocha today and it was $5 and I wanted to punch somebody. In 600 calories. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I wanted uh, a little bit of dirt and I also wanted to see, you know, it's true that I do think some of their employees are, are treated well. So I kind of want to see your overall take on them. Now, Starbucks is a company that has tried to create this image of, of being ethical, better than the rest. And it, I ended up giving it a mixed verdict. In some ways, yeah, you're right. It does treat its workers well. I mean, the outstanding uh, thing about the worker treatment to me is the health insurance. Since 1988, this company has provided health insurance to part-time workers who work 20 hours a week. Oh, wow. I mean, wow. Yeah. So, so, I mean, look at 40 million Americans working full-time don't have health insurance, at least didn't until we passed Obamacare. Right. So, I mean, this is a huge, huge step that this is a company that's providing this very much needed benefit. Uh, and it's genuine. I mean, during the recession, all the Wall Street, you know, uh, analysts and, you know, firms put great pressure on Starbucks. You can't afford this frill. And, and Starbucks and the CEO, Howard Schultz, to their credit, said, this is not a frill, and we will continue this. So that's good. Other than that, look, it's a fast food job, okay? It's hard work. 
mean, they lug these huge bags of coffee and garbage around. The shifts are changed almost without notice. It's very hard to plan your life. You know, so there, there's good and bad. Um, you have to learn these phony Italian names, which if you actually speak Italian will make you cringe. <laughs> that's silly. In terms of working conditions, one thing that Starbucks did that's bad, that's just stupid, there was an attempt to unionize the workers. Now, frankly, it was a kind of, you know, half attempt. I mean, it, it was by a very small union. They probably would have gone nowhere. And Starbucks like just hit into it with 500 cannons and it broke the law. I mean, it was actually found guilty of violating labor laws oh, wow. in the way, it's, you know, it, it did things like um, fired, you know, one of the union organizers unnecessary, wrong, illegal, stupid, and certainly unfriendly to workers. And I don't get it. I don't know why the company acted this, you know, brazenly and, and badly. It's a mixed bag. It's got its good parts and it's got its bad parts. In general, it is considered a nicer place to work than your typical fast food chain. Mm -hmm. It doesn't consider itself a fast food chain. Well, right. It hates being compared to McDonald's, for example. <laughs> We won't go through all six, but I have to say my personal favorite is Trader Joe's because I like to eat organic or at least feel like I'm eating organic and healthy <laughs> yeah. and local and all that good stuff. And they provide it cheaply. I mean, I am always amazed sometimes when I'll go, I like the seafood there because it's usually wild caught or something. And it's the same price, if not less than a giant. So please tell me they're doing a good job. Yeah, I, don't, and, I don't want to hear anything bad. And are they owned by somebody else? <laughs> I'm afraid I'm going to have to disabuse you. Yes, they are oh, no. owned by somebody else. They are part of the Aldi chain, which is owned by a billionaire who Forbes is listed as one of the, you know, whatever, 500 richest people in the world. It used to be him and his brother, but the brother died. So they were two of the five, you know, rich, five hundred richest people in the world. I had to laugh when you said local. I, I'm it sure is, it is the opposite. Think about it. What does Trader Joe's brag about? That it brings you all these exotic foods from around the world that you would never have heard of otherwise, and it pre-cooks them and freezes them, and then you can just pretend that you cooked them. Um, and and that's listen. I mean, that's lovely. To, to have these exotic foods. And you're right that the prices are low, but it's sure not local. And in terms of organic, it is not entirely organic. Many things are. Is it more than your local supermarket? Depends where you shop, right? You know, I guess equivalent to Whole Foods or, or Wegmans, probably more than Safeway. You know, it kind of depends where you shop. You know, the prices are low indeed, and that is wonderful. And I don't know how they do it. Well, they, I know. Partly how they do it is because many things are house brands, and you can keep the prices lower that, that way. That's true. That's true. And their house brands are fantastic, actually. Yeah, the food is good. Yeah. The place is fun. I mean, there's no question about it. It's more fun to go to Trader Joe's than your ordinary supermarket. And to me, that's a consumer value. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't you know, negate that. I mean, I find some of the signs a little too cute, but... Uh -huh. That's my taste, and I'm willing to grant you and them, you know, your taste and their taste. <laughs> well, and, and the other thing is that I like to believe, like you mentioned, I mean, Whole Foods and Wegmans and, and Trader Joe's, I love all three of those. And I think it's almost impossible, and this will be actually a good segue into the other book I want to discuss, uh, The Overloaded Liberal, but these people have to turn a profit. They have to be a successful business, and even if they're moving the needle a little bit in the right direction, I think that's better than 
better than not. So did you kind of discuss that at all or come across that when you were writing this? Yes, I definitely agree with you. And uh, I did discuss that. You know, absolutely, you have to put any business in context, it's industry, it's competition. And sure, all six of these, their good images don't come out of nowhere. Well, except maybe Apple. Okay, five <laughs> of them. The good images don't come out of nowhere. Trader Joe's does have a lot of organic food, and its house brands have no GMOs. It's House brand eggs are cage free. You know, Starbucks does provide you know the health insurance, and it is increasingly seeking out fair trade coffee. So there, there's a real basis for their images, and they are in general better than the rest in their industry. And I, I do want to give them fair credit. I'm just saying, as a consumer, or potentially maybe a stockholder, just investigate. You know, don't take uh, them at their word. Look a little bit behind the label. Before jumping to the next book, I wanted to quickly see if there was something that you could shock me with, I guess, positive things. And that was with American Apparel, because I've heard some not so great things about the people that run that company and just how they treat models, employees, that kind of stuff. So is there any positive that you can (laughs) surprise me with there? Yes, I can. And you're absolutely right that um, American Apparel was the most controversial of the six. No question about it. The um, CEO, Dev Charney, has, been, has nine lawsuits against him by employees claiming sexual harassment. And wow. I've read some of those lawsuits, and I quote some of them in my book, and believe me, the allegations are disgusting, yeah. even allowing the fact that lawsuits often exaggerate. Uh, you know, so definitely, um, you know, horrible, horrible allegations. And, and I think that there's, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. I, I don't think those allegations are made up out of whole cloth. That's a horrible pun for American or organic cotton cloth. Anyway, that's the part we all know. Now, let me tell you the good things that we may or may not know. Here's one thing, that the thing that surprised me the most is this company has this image of sexually, you know, suggestive, sleazy advertising. But I really investigated... This is this is the kind of investigative work I did. I, I went to um, about two dozen copies of Vogue and Seventeen and Glamour and Marie Claire and Teen Vogue, and I went to American Apparel and Victoria's Secret and Hollister and Uniqlo and H&M. This is the hard work I have to do <laughs> for my book. But seriously, comparing the ads, comparing the store displays. And my surprising conclusion is that American Apparel is really no worse than the others. It's not more sexually suggestive in the ads or displays, possibly the website. (laughs) And again, depends who you're comparing it to. I mean, nothing beats Victoria's Secret, I suppose, or some of those, you know, ads in vogue that were not for American Apparel. You know, in fact, sometimes in store displays were kind of cute and and kind of a fun-loving spirit and not sexy at all. So that was the surprising good part. That in its marketing, it's not as, as, you know, sexual and sleazy as people think, although the working conditions may well be as bad as the images. So maybe that changed your mind a little bit, John. I don't know. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> um, now transitioning into the overloaded liberal, which similar undertones to ethical chic, I love it because I'd like to think I was 
not the first adopter of kind of the organic movement, but early for sure. And I, I can contribute that a lot to my brother and my family, but mm-hmm. I kind of had the organic milk in the fridge before mm-hmm. I think many of my friends and everything. And I realize now when I go to the grocery store and look at labels or, you know, look at Made in America or whatever it might be, I used to feel weird about it. Like, oh, if somebody sees me looking at the back of a thing of ice cream, that I'm gonna I'm gonna be kind of an outcast. But now it's so normal and it's so cool. And with that, there's all these problems because now you hear it's not really organic, it's not really free range, it's not you know all this. And that's what you tackle a lot in this book. And so I kind of wanted to see why you decided to write this and what your your real goal was behind all this. Well, it really began with a conversation with a friend. I had just published my third book, Pension Dumping, and my friend who shared my views, you know, we basically both concerned about the environment and treatment of workers and all these kinds of ethical open values. So she said, well, your next book, you should write about Whole Foods and how wonderful it is. And I said, I hate Whole Foods. <laughs> and she said, oh, I love Whole Foods, it's all this organic food. And I said, I hate it, it's expensive. It puts the little local stores out of business. And it got me thinking, you have two people here who basically agree, who on our values, who so drastically disagreed on our view of this sort of one you know, iconic, supposedly ethical company. So it just got me thinking what other companies might have these split images and what other divisions might a person have within herself or himself if you're trying to you know, shop or live according to a set of ethical values and you can't even find a product or a store that meets your values. You know, everything is contradictory. And so that, anyway, that's how it began and I started looking for all these contradictions and, and once you look, you know, <laughs> you get flooded. Yeah, I can only imagine. And I guess what I really want to know is I want to learn from you when it comes to this. So what are some key takeaways you figured out with these contradictions and, and some some points or some things we can arm ourselves with when we go shopping? I mean, I don't want you to give away at all, but just a little teaser. And this applies to both books, really. Uh, the fact is that you, you have to set priorities. You know, you can't find it all in one company. So what you have to do is, as we were talking about a few minutes ago, with each company, you have to compare it to the rest of its industry. And then you have to look at yourself and say, what am I going to give up? What's most important? And also, what are some values that tend to overlap? Which are the ones that are easiest to you know, get a twofer? And which are the ones that most often contradict that I, I'm really going to have to make a decision? You know, that makes sense and it's tough. I like to think, for example, when I go shopping, I don't try and get everything organic or whatever it might be, but produce, you know, I just stick to it. If it has an organic label, look, I might be wrong, but it's got to be better in some fashion. So I just make a few key changes and try not to concentrate on the minutiae. Well, see, with produce, you raise an interesting point. Because one thing we haven't discussed is price and organic is generally more expensive. You kind of have to decide now where your pocketbook comes in with all this. And with our produce, many people, including myself, we kind of decided, hmm, which ones are more important? And I had this maybe silly um, dividing line. If I don't eat the skin, if it's got a really thick, heavy skin, 
then it doesn't have to be organic because right. the, the fruit inside is yeah. protected, a cantaloupe or something, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and scientists who've researched this, they came up with a list, which is in my book, which in many ways overlaps the, what might seem a logical uh, list about the skin, uh, thick skin. So there, it's not just, you know, silly. Um, if you look at this list, you know, a lot of this makes sense. But there are certain ones that surprise you. Bananas and avocados surprise you. But in general, it's, it is an obvious uh, way to begin anyway. Now, is there enough regulation within the food industry that an organic sticker really has to mean organic? I mean, the same way that food companies can get away with other stuff, with calling things natural or, or this kind of stuff, where it's truly not that. Can I walk into a place and see an organic sticker and know, okay, this is definitely organic. I'm safe buying this. Organic is one of the few that does actually mean something. In fact, there are many cases, especially when you go to a farmer's market, where it's kind of the other way. Because the requirements for getting organic certification are so strict, many small farmers can't afford it. And though they are raising their produce in ways we would call organic, they can't use that certification hmm. because essentially you have to leave your fields fallow, just grow nothing for three years before you can then start growing things and sell it as organic. And small guys can't afford this. So organic means something, but you're right. Natural means nothing. Mm-hmm. With animals, something like cage-free does and free-range do have meanings, but with many animals, so uh, like organic with animals doesn't mean as much as it does with produce. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some things have a meaning and some don't. You got to really do your research. Yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah. And, th- and that's why we guide you to the overloaded liberal. So, <laughs> Fran, that's, that's pretty much what we wanted to talk to you about. I know we went a, a few minutes over, but really appreciate you being on the show. And we've mentioned your new phenomenal book, Ethical Chic and the Overloaded Liberal. Was there anywhere else that our uh, listeners could go check out and learn more about you and your writing and things like that? Well, thanks for asking. Uh, I would suggest two things. Um, I do have a website, and it's called Hawthorne Writer, H-A-W-T-H-O-R-N-E-W-R-I-T-E-R. So it's my last name, Hawthorne, and then the word writer, dot com. And also, if you go to either to that website, to the page that says where else to go, or you go to the, my publisher's website, Beacon, B-E-A-C-O-N, beacon.org, and you look up my book, in both those places, you will find that I've prepared a list, a kind of consumer resource guide, which people have told me is the most thorough list they have ever seen of organizations that rate companies that investigate companies for all these kinds of areas we've been talking about. Far too much research, of course. If you tried to shop according to those lists, you'd go crazy. <laughs> but uh, if you're interested, though, it's a list you might you know, want to look at. No, that actually that's great, and, and thanks for bringing that up. That's somewhere we definitely want to guide people because the informed consumer is, uh, is the best kind, and we appreciate you lending your knowledge and kind of researching these things and passing it on to us. Well, again, thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. All right, Fran, have a great night. You too. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you guys that are still listening to us. We appreciate when you stay around and listen to Chris and I ramble on and on and on in the outro. We try to keep it short. Chris is shaking his head at me. I think he's mad, but I can never tell. Mm-hmm. It's not at you. I was just thinking, well, 
we'll, we'll talk about it off air. I think we need to structure the show a little bit. I think we should say like it's going to be a three minute intro, one minute outro, twenty five minute interview. What do you guys think? Tweet at us, Smart People Pod. Let us know. It's yeah. up to your vote. No, that, that's good. But you don't even have to. Tw- I mean, you can do whatever you want. Contact us through our oh, website. I just always have wanted to say tweet at us. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no, yeah, I'd be interested. You know, let us know. Do you like how it is? Do you want it to be whatever? I don't know. We like hearing from you. You guys this have been is good your, with that. Yeah, this is your show. We want to. We want to tailor it to how you guys want to hear it. I'm, I'm going to be honest. It's not your show at all. Why? That is that is not true. It's our show. I love each and every single one of you, and I value you. Yep. Opinions. All right. Thanks for joining us. We'll please, catch you next week. Please send Chris personal emails and tell him why. See you later, guys. See you guys. See you guys.